artificial intelligence will completely transform our world. But what is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? Welcome to AI and You. Here is your host, author, speaker, and futurist, Peter Scott. Hi. In this episode, we'll be talking with Christoph Kovacs, the supervisory psychologist of International Mensa. Mensa is a worldwide society whose membership requires a score in the upper 2% of the population on an IQ test. I actually passed the test and joined British Mensa when I was 16, which is not a way to be popular in high school, but more about that another time. It's an interesting organization. There's a huge range of interests, personality types, degrees of personal success, but everyone is very engaged in thinking. Obviously, it's also very much an organization of people who want to join it, in addition to being able to join it, so it's not necessarily representative of everyone who has that level of intelligence. And by general agreement, no one talks about their IQ there. They all treat each other as equals. I spent a few years there and revisited it again not long ago. Christoph speaks for Mensa on the definition of intelligence. His job is to ensure that they're measuring the right thing in the right way. And he is an active researcher in cognitive psychology and psychometrics. We've spent all this time talking about artificial intelligence, and we know what artificial means. But what is intelligence? But first, I have to give a plug for something I'm very excited about. For the last three years, I've been giving a continuing studies course that covers the same theme as this podcast. What is AI? Why will it affect you? And how can you and your business survive and thrive through the AI revolution? And this year, for the first time, that course will be online, for fairly obvious reasons. So, I had the time changed to morning in my time zone, Pacific time, so that it runs at a time where everyone from Hawaii to Moscow can participate at a reasonable hour. Sorry, all you folk in India, China, Australia, Japan. We'll work out something for you in next time. This is 10 hours of instruction. It takes place over five classes, one per week, starting September 9th. There's a registration link in the show notes and the transcript. Or you can go to continuingstudies.uvic.ca and search on artificial intelligence. It's the first hit. You'll know you're in the right place if you see University of Victoria at the top. Since it's online, I'm hoping they won't cap the sign-ups at the limit they have on the page. I get paid the same no matter how many people are in the course. The reason I want lots of people there is to get more of my message out there, and because the more people, the more fun and impactful the classes. What are we going to talk about? A huge variety of things, from history of AI to the present issues to the speculative future, from the people who are influential in the field to the impact of AI on jobs, media, and society. We'll spend a great deal of time explaining AI at a practical level that doesn't require computer experience, so we get a good idea of just what it can and cannot do now and in the future. 
Obviously, that's a really broad syllabus, just like this podcast. We're not going to teach how to program AI. There's no code or math. It's all about, well, AI and you. Everything I'm producing is doing that job. This class, my videos, my TEDx talks, my book, and this podcast. Next up, there'll be a Broadway musical. My vision, just so you know where I want to take this, is to produce not just a course, but an entire department, giving multiple programs of multiple courses for credit at undergraduate and graduate levels, and also with high school and corporate training versions. The idea is not world domination. Well, not just world domination but to create part of what we need to help people understand how to deal with and leverage disruption. All right, on with the interview. Welcome, everyone. This is going to be a fascinating show because my guest today is Christoph Kovacs, who is the supervisory psychologist of Mensa International, which is a worldwide organization whose only criterion for membership is that the members score in the top 2% of a standardized test of intelligence. Christoph obtained a MA from the University of Szeged and a PhD from the University of Cambridge. Subsequently, he worked as a postdoctoral fellow at the Budapest University of Technology and Economics and the University of Amsterdam. His main interest is individual differences in cognitive abilities bridging cognitive psychology and psychometrics. Currently, he is Senior Research Fellow at, and I'm going to give this my best attempt here, Eertverse Lorand University. Did I get that right, Christoph? Yes, you did. Um, hello, and thank you for having me. Well, thank you for coming on the show. This is, this is going to be really interesting. How did you get into this field? What led you to be interested in the nature of intelligence? I already as an undergraduate, I was interested in. So that was my, this is a topic of my thesis or something related to this was already a topic of my, of my master's thesis, uh, just individual differences in cognitive psychology. Individual differences are pretty much sort of the abandoned child of cognitive psychology. Really, it's not, it, it, it developed in its own ways from the mainstream study of cognition. So it's an interesting thing in psychology. So on the one hand, you have a field that studies cognition and another one that studies individual differences in cognition. And they are very different uh, in, in so many ways. Uh, the individual differences research is very applied. And I, I was interested in intelligence from a cognitive psychology perspective, so not psychometrics primarily, even though eventually for my research I had to uh, get, my, get my hands dirty with some psychometrics because if you study individual differences, it's, it's unavoidable. But mostly I'm, I, have an I have a basic research interest in individual differences rather than a measurement interest. So it's, I think it's, it's, it's a very interesting area that's, that's not as popular in cognitive psychology as many other areas and as much as it should be, in my opinion. Thank you. And now the relevance of this to artificial intelligence is that, well, if we look at other things that are artificial, artificial turf, artificial sweetener, artificial insemination, the antecedents of those terms are precisely defined. We know very well what makes the artificial versions of them artificial. But when we talk about artificial intelligence, we have a great deal of 
difficulty defining the term, partly because we don't know what intelligence is in humans, or at least most people don't have a, a good understanding of that, and that's why we're talking with you here. How should we understand intelligence? Most of us fall back on the definition of, well, intelligence is what's measured by IQ tests, which is great if you're not the person who has to write the IQ test, but I think that's something that you do, right? You have to know how to do that. So help us out here. Okay. Um, well, the many people includes most researchers because uh, there's no universal agreement on a definition. Um, and it, it really depends on one's approach. If you, if you look at um, a battery of IQ tests, so, okay, just, just one step back. IQ is, is, is measured in group settings as well as individual settings. Um, what Mensa does is it usually measures in group settings. And then you get just one or two kinds of, 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 of uh, items in terms of domain. But uh, individual, individual uh, IQ testing happens with, with test batteries that have like 10, 12 different subtests. And if you look at them, they your impression surely will be that they measure different things. I mean, uh, a given subtest requires voc vocabulary. Another one, uh, nonverbal inductive reasoning. A third one, something spatial like rotating objects um, and telling which one's identical and which one's mirrored. Um, and then there are tests of general knowledge. There are tests of pure speed, which, which means that they are so easy that given enough time, practically anyone could, could get a perfect score. But since there's a strong time limit, people have to go as fast as they can. Uh, and there are, of course, tests of memory when you have to, when you are told, let's say, digits and you have to repeat them or in the original order or in the reverse order. Um, and probably most people, if, if you just give it to a, a number of laymen and ask them if they measure the same thing, I, my bet would be that most would say no. I mean, these are different things. Um, and it's one of the oldest debates in psychology, whether to focus on a general intelligence, and if, if there is a general intelligence that sort of permeates all cognitive activity, or there's, there are a set of specific abilities. Now, if you look at these particular test batteries, what happens is that if they, they administer these subtests, and then it's possible to calculate some kind of global score, which is usually called some kind of IQ, but not necessarily. I mean, uh, there's, there's a, uh, the most, in the most widely used individual test, it's called full-scale IQ. But another one, uh, another one which is also widely used, and in my opinion, one of the best ability tests, uh, I don't know if, you are, if I'm allowed to say the name of tests or that's, that's advertising. Um, anyway, so for instance, the Woodhock Johnson tests of cognitive abilities, it's arguably one of the best tests of intelligence, and it doesn't have intelligence in its name. It talks about cognitive abilities in plural, uh, and the index doesn't have, it's, it's called general ability index, it doesn't have intelligence or IQ in it. Whereas the Wexler test, which is probably the most widely used test, it has a global index called full-scale IQ, and it's uh, the Wexler scale of intelligence in singular. So these are different approaches that manifest themselves in actual test construction. Um, one approach is that we have these different subtests, but frankly, all of them just measure the same thing. Um, and so they, roughly, they measure this, the same thing with different content and to different extent, um, but they measure the same thing. And that's called a general factor, which is something I'll get into. But uh, um, 
so you could think of uh, of, of uh, thermometers as an, as an analogy. So you can measure body temperature in a number of different ways. You can you have infrared ones, ones that need contact, um, once you put in your mouth, once you put under your armpit, once you get next to your forehead and so on and so forth. And they might give different results. Uh, people with small children are very well aware that they annoyingly often do give different results. Um, but nobody would really think that they measure different things just because they give different results. Uh, and there's pretty much a consensus, I think, that, they may, that body temperature exists without measurement. Uh, it, it, it would exist if no one measured it. And these, these are just uh, imperfect measurement devices that give uh, disagreeing results because of error terms. Now, the, the approach which says that all these tests measure the same channel intelligence uh, basically are analogous, uh, treat these tests as analogous to, uh, to thermometers. Um, whereas another approach says that the other approach focuses on specific abilities um, and says that you can get a weight average such as IQ as a, uh, and any kind of global index, but that will be just that, a weight average. So uh, it's, it's, it's a summary statistic of something of, of a few very different things. Um, so then it's not that everything measures the same thing just to, differ, to a different extent, but, but these things are measured. And you can still constitute an index. There are a lot of uh, index variables used in life, like, for instance, uh, the global competitiveness index is com composed of a dozen different things uh, that are still correlated, just like in IQ, but they're different. So that gets back to our definition. People, as researchers, have different conceptions. And the big question is general intelligence. Now, if you administer these 10, 12 tests to, to a population, you will find that, that results will correlate. So if you correlate any test with any other test, the correlation will always be positive. Uh, and that's called in the literature the positive manifold, which is technically just a correlation matrix with positive entries. And if you use a statistical method called factor analysis, which has been thoroughly employed by, by intelligence researchers, it will give a general factor. So it will give a single factor that explains about half of the total variance. And the debate revolves around whether the G, which is a, which is a uh, statistical construct, whether G actually represents something psychological, and if yes, then what? Or if it's, if it's not necessarily an artifact, but still just a statistical construction, uh, and then it's, it's not that tests reflect G. So I think the debate revolves around whether G is the common cause of the correlations between tests, or the common consequence. Of, of those correlations. Now, I'm not trying to be difficult and avoid the question, but you see that the, this is the fundamental uh, question when, in which each researchers differ, and if different approaches to this question lead to different approaches to the definition of intelligence. It is a difficult question, I think, for many people to grapple with. So you can look at, you're, you're saying that you can look at different kinds of tests and you can statistically determine whether they are measuring the same thing. It's the nature of that thing that's still up for debate. In the, say, the self-help section of bookstores, we can find things talking about different kinds of intelligence that are, for instance, emotional intelligence. 
is a thing. And people talk about seven different kinds of intelligences in some models and then physical intelligence. If, if I look at the capabilities my elder daughter has, she's got horticultural intelligence. She can make anything grow <laughs> much better than me. Uh, my wife has uh, culinary intelligence. There could be a nutritional intelligence of uh, knowing what the best things are to eat intuitively. And these could be considered perhaps domain-specific intelligences, but there's still some underlying factor that seems to be difference. Like we should separate intelligence from knowledge, right? If, if we think of the brain being analogous to a computer, then somehow it seems as though what we know is the RAM and intelligence is the CPU, the thing that processes it. And that, that could be, that could have different capabilities independent of what we know. Is that true? How much does intelligence depend upon memorization? So these, uh, these, these I think are, are, are two uh, questions. Uh, the memorization, again, if, if you think, it also depends whether or not you, 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 you um, are a believer in uh, general intelligence or not. If, if, so it's, uh, you said there are seven different intelligences, you probably meant gardeners' intelligences. Um, but yes. actually there are models of purely cognitive abilities that presume seven or even more abilities. For instance, the, one of the most uh, accepted models was the, the CHC model, which is uh, CHC stands for three people, uh, Cattell, Horn, and Carroll. The CHC model actually proposes uh, seven main different, uh, ability, different abilities, and all of them, all of which are cognitive. And this, the, the, the basis of, I mean, what, what the CHC model is built on or, or is the successor, successor of is the so-called fluid crystallized model, which differentiates between fluid and crystallized intelligence. And the CHC model basically adds more abilities to this distinction, so not just fluid and crystallized. And the difference between fluid and crystallized intelligence is that fluid intelligence uh, reflects the ability to solve novel problems. Um, ones uh, that when we have to solve, we cannot rely on already acquired skills uh, or or knowledge. Um, uh, crystallized intelligence, on the other hand, uh, is, is the application of word acquired skills and knowledge. And a typical test of crystallized intelligence is vocabulary. Um, now, obviously, there's more knowledge component in crystallized intelligence because that's pretty much uh, uh, defined as crystallized knowledge, uh, a knowledge of, 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 uh, of one's own culture, pretty much. Uh, whereas fluid intelligence is novel problem solving. So, so if you uh, think that this is a meaningful distinction, which I personally do, then the answer is that it depends in not much in fluid intelligence, but a lot in crystallized intelligence. And as for the domain specificity thing uh, that you mentioned, I think it's, it's very, very important. And I think it relates to already to the problem of artificial intelligence, because in the uh, golden age of, of artificial intelligence, uh, like in the 1950s, 60s, when people believed that a computer will be the chess champion in like 10, 15 years, which didn't happen for another 30, 35. Um, uh, depends if coming from 50, then even more. Um, so then they were hoping for for a human-like intelligence, one that that just that that is very general, so that that, that actually comprehends different sorts of problems. Uh, and whereas what what artificial intelligence really managed to create 
Uh, and it's not just my opinion, Marvin Minsky, one of the founding fathers of artificial uh, intelligence research, uh, once, once wrote about this, that what in fact happened is that a lot of specialists have been created. So uh, many artificial intelligence are, uh, agents are like, well, like your family that you mentioned, they are, they are experts in agriculture or, or, uh, or, or, or cooking or, or, uh, or things. So it's a particular specific field. And the interest in a human-like uh, intelligence is, uh, that's artificial is still on the table, of course. So there is interest in this and the question is still on the table. Uh, and these days it's very often called AGI, uh, it's, it's a you're, you're very well aware, which is artificial general intelligence. But it's a funny evolution. I mean, AI was meant to be AGI uh, for these go. And what happened is that AGI really whenever was created the way it was uh, uh, envisaged. And, and then what was created is, is a number of, of very good specialists, especially it's a very good, very good specialist. And so there's, there's, there's a born interest in that. So, but, but as I said, this is similar to the debate about uh, if there is a general intelligence in the first place in humans. Um, because if there is not, then it's going to be a very tricky enterprise to create an artificial version of it if it doesn't exist. So you see these, these problems are interrelated. Right. And you mentioned culture there, which is, a, I think, a very important factor because weren't some of the early intelligence tests quite culturally biased that they had questions about situations, hypothetical situations where you, that you had to solve and they were predicated on certain cultural assumptions that wouldn't necessarily apply to everyone that might be taking the test and so they would exclude uh, a lot of people artificially lower their score because they weren't part of the culture that wrote the test. Yes, that is very much the case. I mean, early IQ tests had a lot of cultural component uh, without test constructors uh, giving uh, um, adequate uh, acknowledgement of this fact. And, and the results were often interpreted as um, general, innate, uh, and very fixed uh, ability, uh, all of which that I just listed off, which are of course controversial and, and are indeed a matter of debate in the field. Um, but just to make clear, it's not just, uh, and, and yes, there are many examples where I cited a number of books, uh, particularly ones that criticize IQ tests. Uh, and there are a number of, of, of such books, as we know, and, and they cite examples from early IQ tests, uh, tests like when they had to, you have to interpret, uh, or one had to interpret uh, situations that are obviously bounded in culture. In Binet's first test, there's this test, there's this famous figure where there are pairs of female faces and one has to decide which one's prettier uh, and so on. Um, but this just to make clear, there is no, it's not just the IQ testers, there is no such thing as a completely culture fair, culture free, sorry, there is no such thing as a completely culture free test. So that was that was uh, something people hoped for, and there still are, to be honest. Um, but I, I, I'm, I think, and I think the arguments are pretty strong that there is no such thing as completely culture uh, uh, free. So even nonverbal inductive tests, uh, like the Ravens, if you're familiar, where you have to solve uh, matrices, 
uh, of visual matrices and there's no learned material and it uh, measures novel problem solving in Western cultures, still that's dependent uh, in many ways on, on schooling. And if you bring it to some uh, place, some place in the world where to give it to people who have had absolutely no formal schooling, then it won't measure the same thing. And they, there are psychometric te techniques now to measure one. Uh, well, obviously what you describe is called test bias if it's at the test level or item bias if it's at the item level. And there are statistical techniques to detect either. Um, so if you, if, if a test, so if, if the probability to solve a given item correctly depends not only on the latent construct that's being measured, uh, but also on one's group membership, then, uh, then, then, uh, the test is biased. I, I try to explain it because it's it's a complicated thing. So just because there are differences between groups, it doesn't necessarily mean the test is biased. It, because it can be the case that there are differences in the latent construct that is being measured by the test. But if someone in one group uh, with a given uh, level of, of ability, given standing on the latest latent construct, has a different probability of getting the item right, then someone in the other group with the same exact level of ability, then the item is biased because then the probability of getting the item right is not only and exclusively conditional on ability. Yes, so I don't know if, if that answered uh, the question. I, I, I think it, it starts to open up a, a really interesting question. In artificial intelligence, people try to define that in terms of the ability of some object, some entity, some agent, to proceed towards an objective, to achieve a task in a world. But it's the definition of what that world is that I think is critical here. And that also is what gets at the difference between cultural interpretations. I mean, you could take smartest person in the world, Marilyn Vosavant or whoever it might be these days. And like in the movie Crocodile Dundee, you, you put her down in the bush in uh, the outback of Australia or New Guinea, and one of the locals there will be far smarter than her at surviving because she's from uh, our culture and uh, urban culture, and she's going to be smarter than any of us at dealing with a new situation, but not as smart as, as someone that's got that capability of dealing with a, a really different world. And, and so it seems that to evaluate intelligence, we have to define the world in which that intelligence operates. Does this make any sense? Yes, it makes perfect sense, actually. And what you touched on really uh, uh, implicitly is the concept of, of national IQ and these maps of IQ scores in the world with the countries having different uh, average IQs. And if you've seen these, these are, these are loved generally by, by the media and, and several uh, you know, popular news um, New sites, um, but it's also very controversial. Um, yes, uh, my my supervisor in Cambridge, Nick McIntosh, once wrote a very strong review of, of one of these books on, on National IQ, in which he criticized actually what he just said that 
like you, you can bring an IQ test to uh, the outback, like a crocodile dandy situation, uh, let alone to indigenous peoples living there, um, and and find a low IQ score. I mean, probably they arguably predictably will score low, but it doesn't mean they are not intelligent. Uh, arguably, so my my supervisor's example in this book review was uh, was uh, was Bushman. The Sun Bushman, uh, which according to one of these books on on national IQ, uh, are supposed to have an IQ of 54, because that's how they perform on IQ tests. Now, uh, an IQ of 54 pretty much equals the mental age of an eight-year-old European or American child. And it is not very likely that you drop an, an average American or Canadian or European eight-year-old in the middle of the Kalahari Desert and they will survive, whereas some Bushmen clearly do and they have for hundreds of uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. Um, um, not, not hundreds, but okay, I don't know, tens of thousands of years. Um, so yes, this is a tricky thing. You can you can bring westernized tests, and it leads back to what I said. There's, I'm not convinced. Some people think that there are completely uh, culture-free uh, tests, and it is possible to test the exact same abilities. Just bring an IQ test uh, to, to 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 the Kalahari Desert and give it to Bushmen, and they will get they the, the test will measure the same uh, construct there. I don't think so. I'm, I'm, I'm not convinced that this is the case. So I agree with what you just said. So it, it seems that to have a, a useful definition of intelligence, we have to have a useful definition of the environment that it's operating in. If I define that environment to be the game of Go, which is a pure abstraction that we just represent with black and white stones on a board, then AlphaGo Zero is the smartest entity on the planet. But that's not useful to us because we operate in a world that's many times bigger than the game of go and it's not that interesting to most of us so i think we have a, a good idea of what we would like an artificial intelligence to do if it was generally intelligent sweep the house do all kinds of things that involve an understanding of our local environment and that's the the, the big question in as you say general intelligence is how do we get something to have that, that general understanding of the world? But an artificial intelligence that started evolving according to, say, some abstract environment, say it, that it, it grows out of understanding mathematics, theoretical physics, chemistry, we start piling Wikipedia in there and it becomes as smart as Watson, but it never grew up in the, the world, it never moved around, it didn't have that kind of background. How should we start evaluating whether something we're confronted with that claims perhaps that it has general intelligence really does? I think what one has to realize is that that measurement of intelligence, uh, the concept of measurement of intelligence is very different for an artificial agent. Uh, than for for humans. I mean, because if you think about tests, uh, most uh, until very recently, uh, practically all tests of artificial intelligence give sort of dichotomous results. So, like if you think about the Turing test, uh, you can you either pass the Turing test or you fail the Turing test. 
uh, human IQ testing is very differ different. So the, 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 the purpose of human IQ testing is to put people on a scale to get a quantitative uh, evaluation of their cognitive abilities. It's, it doesn't, so in humans, it, it doesn't happen that people take, a, take an IQ test and, and uh, so what was the result? Well, you're, you're intelligent, that's the result. Yeah, or you are not intelligent, that you, you fail, the, you pass the IQ test or you fail the IQ test. You don't say things like that. On the other hand, when it comes to machines, until very recently, all the approach was like, every approach was like the Turing test. Uh, you fail or not fail, and and and, and recently there have been uh, attempts to to quantify artificial intelligence, so get an artificial version of of an IQ of some sort. Uh, so for a version of, of of the IQ for artificial agents. Um, so I think that is a very fundamental difference in terms of in terms of measurement. So you guessed it. We'll be concluding the interview in the next episode so that we don't exceed certain time and size thresholds for podcast episodes. There's always time and space we're short on, isn't it? We mentioned the Turing test there, and that's something that will come up a lot in this podcast. But the quick explanation is that it was proposed by Alan Turing as the way of deciding whether a computer is thinking like a human by having a conversation with one without knowing whether you might be talking to a human and seeing whether you thought it was in fact human. More about that later. One of our quick looks at the latest headlines about AI here. Could AI be smart enough to discover or invent new theories about the nature of the universe? One already is. Tylin Wu and Max Tegmark at MIT have developed an AI that copies some of the methods of Galileo and other scientists. It's called the AI Physicist, and is capable of teasing out several laws of physics. Now, here's the catch. It does that in simulated worlds that have been deliberately constructed to model the complexity of our universe. AI systems often produce overly complex models to describe the data they've been trained on. What's special about this system is that it's been trained to prefer simpler theories over more complex ones, which you may recognize as the Occam's razor approach that is one of scientists' tools for constructing theories. Another approach physicists use is to look for ways to unify theories. Look at Einstein. Physicists have serious Einstein envy because he came up with E equals mc squared. And not only is that just about the simplest equation in physics, but it also unifies matter and energy, which is most of what we deal with. Every physicist dreams of finding another equation that simple that has that kind of meaning. And finally, another principle that scientists apply to creating theories is lifelong learning. The idea that if a particular approach has worked in the past, it might work in the future. So the AI physicist remembers previous solutions and tries them on future problems. Wu and Tegmark created 40 different simulated worlds that had different laws of physics in them from what we have in the real world, and let the AI physicist see if it could figure them out. And it did. And it did it a lot faster and better than a conventional neural network. In fact, its error rate was about a billionth of what one of those was. So this points the way towards AI helping scientists develop new and improved models of our universe. 
Again, I have to point out that we're not by any means at general artificial intelligence, but we really are showing just how much narrow AIs are able to do. In the next episode of AI and You, Christoph and I will talk more about the nature of intelligence, whether you can increase your own, whether the average level of intelligence in the population is changing, and just what does an IQ score mean? We'll also talk about what Mensa is like and Christoph's research into intelligence and genetics. Until then, remember, no matter how much computers learn how to do, it's how we come together as humans that matters. That's all for this episode of AI and You. Please leave a rating and comment and share with your friends. Get the book Crisis of Control and see more videos and articles at AINU.net. That's A-I-A-N-D-Y-O-U.net, where you can also send us your questions. Thank you for listening.